Continuing our reading of a book first published in 1692 by Thomas Watson. It's called The Ten Commandments. Brother Watson is opening the Eighth Commandment, point two, the kinds of theft. The church thief. A church thief seldom or ever preaches to the people. He gets the golden fleece but lets the flock starve. Woe be to the shepherds of Israel, Ezekiel 34.2. They fed themselves and fed not my flock. These church thieves, these ministers, will be indicted for thieves at the bar of God's judgment. Number five, the stop thief who steals in selling. He who uses false weights and measures steals from others what is their due making the ephah small, Amos 8, 5. The ephah was a measure the Jews used in selling. Some made the ephah small and gave scant measure, which was plainly stealing. The balances of deceit are in his hand, Hosea 12, 7. By making their weights lighter, men make their accounts heavier. He steals in selling who puts excessive prices on his commodities. He takes three times as much for an article as it cost him or as it is worth. To overreach others in selling is to steal money from them. Thou shalt not defraud thy neighbor, neither rob him. Leviticus 19.13 To defraud your neighbor is to rob him. To overreach others in selling, a cunning way of stealing. And it is against both law and gospel. It is against the law of God. If thou sell aught to thy neighbor, ye shall not oppress one another. Leviticus 25.14 It is against the gospel, 1 Thessalonians 4.6, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother. Sixth, the usurer is a thief. He takes by extortion from others. He seems to help another by letting him have money when he needs it, but gets him into the bonds of debt, and sucks out his very blood and marrow. I read of a woman whom Satan had bound in Luke chapter 13, and truly he is almost in as bad a condition whom the usurer has bound. The usurer is a thief and a robber. A usurer once asked a prodigal when he would leave off spending. The prodigal replied, I will leave off spending what is my own when thou leavest off stealing from others. Zacchaeus was an extortioner. After his conversion, he made restitution. Luke 19.8. He thought all he got by extortion was theft. Number seven, the trustee who has the orphan's estate committed to him is deputed to be his guardian and manages his estate for him. If he curtails the estate, gets a fleece out of it for himself, his own benefit, and wrongs the orphan, he is a thief. This is worse than taking a purse by violence because he betrays his trust, which is the highest piece of treachery and injustice. Number eight, the borrower who borrows money from others with an intention never to pay them again is a thief. The wicked borroweth and payeth not again. Psalm 37.21 What is it but thievery to take money and goods from others and not restore them again? The prophet Elisha bade the widow to sell her oil and pay her debts and then live upon the rest, 2 Kings 4.7. Number nine, the last sort of theft is the receiver of stolen goods. The receiver, if he be not the principal, yet is accessory to the crime, and the law makes him guilty. The thief steals the money, and the receiver holds the sack to put it in. The root would die if it were not watered, and thieving would cease if it were not encouraged by the receiver's. I'm apt to think that he who does not scruple to take stolen goods into his house would as little scruple to have stolen them himself. Question. What are the aggravations of this sin, of theft? First, to steal when there is no need to be a rich thief. Second, to steal sacrilegiously, to devour things set apart to holy uses. It is a snare to the man who devoureth that which is holy, Proverbs 20, 25. Such an one was Dionysius, who robbed his temple and took away the silver vessels. Third, to commit the sin of theft against checks of your conscience and examples of God's justice, which, like the dye to the wool, dyes the sin of a crimson color. Fourth, to rob the widow and orphan. Ye shall not afflict the widow or fatherless. This sin shrieks aloud. If they cry unto me, I will surely hear them. Exodus 22, 23. 
Fifthly, to rob the poor. How angry was David that the rich man should take away the poor man's lamb. As the Lord lives, he shall surely die. Second Samuel 12.5 What is enclosing of commons but robbing the poor? Third, there is a stealing from a man's self. A man may be a thief to himself. How so? By being niggardly, stingy. The niggard is a thief. He steals from himself in not allowing himself what is needful. He thinks that loss which is bestowed upon himself, he robs himself of necessities. A man to whom God hath given riches, yet God giveth him not power to eat thereof. Ecclesiastes 6.2 He gluts his chest and starves his belly. He's like the ass that's loaded with gold but feeds upon thistles. He robs himself of what God allows him. This is to be punished with riches, to have an estate and lack a heart to take the comfort of it. Secondly, a man may rob himself by foolishly wasting his estate. The prodigal lavishes gold out of the bag. He is like Crates, the philosopher who threw his gold into the sea. The prodigal boils a great estate to nothing. He is a thief to himself who spends away that estate which might conduce to the comfort of life. Thirdly, he is a thief to himself by idleness when he misspends his time. He who spends his hours in pleasure and vanity robs himself of that precious time which God has given him to work out salvation in. Time is a rich commodity because on well-spending present time a happy eternity depends. He spends his time idly and vainly is a thief to himself. He robs himself of golden seasons and, by consequence, of salvation. Fourth, a man may be a thief to himself by suretyship. Be not thou one of them that are sureties for debts, Proverbs 22:26. The creditor comes upon the surety for debt, and so by paying another's debt, he is a thief to himself. Let not any man say he would have been counted unkind if he had not entered into a bond for his friend co-signing that note. Better thy friend should count thee unkind than all men count thee unwise. Lend another what you can spare, nay, give him if he needs, but never be a surety. It is no wisdom for a man so to help another as to undo himself. It is to rob himself and his family. Uses in this commandment. Use 1. For confutation of the doctrine of community, that all things are common, and one man has a right to another man's property, this is confuted by Scripture. When thou comest into the standing corn of thy neighbor, thou shalt not move a sickle unto thy neighbor's corn. Deuteronomy 23.25 Property must be respected. God has set this eighth commandment, thou shalt not steal, as a hedge about a man's property. And this hedge cannot be broken without sin. If all things were common, there can be no theft, and so this commandment would be vain. Use 2. For reproof of such as live by stealing, instead of living by faith, they live by their wits. The apostle exhorts that every man eat his own bread, 2 Thessalonians 3.12. The thief does not eat his own bread, but another's. If there be any who are guilty of this sin, let them labor to recover out of the snare of the devil by repentance, and let them show their repentance by restitution. As Augustine says, without restitution, no remission. If I have taken anything away from any man by false accusation, said Zacchaeus, I restore him fourfold, Luke 19.8. Ill-gotten gain may be restored by one's own hand or by proxy. Better a thousand times restore goods unlawfully taken than stuff your pillow with thorns and have guilt trouble your conscience upon your deathbed. Use 3. For exhortation to all who take heed of the sin of thieving, which is against the light of nature. Some may endeavor to excuse this sin. It's a coarse wool that will take no dye, and a bad sin that has no excuse. You say, I I've grown low in the world, and, and business is bad, and I have no other way to a livelihood. First, this shows great distrust in God, as if God could not provide for you without you sinning. Second, it shows sin to be at a great height, that 
Because a man is grown low in the world, therefore he will knock at hell's door, go to the devil for a livelihood. Abraham would not have it said that the king of Sodom had made him rich. Genesis 14.22 Oh, let it never be said that the devil has made you rich. Thirdly, you ought not to undertake any action upon which you cannot pray for a blessing, but you cannot pray for a blessing upon stolen goods. Therefore, take heed of this sin. You gain materially, but your conscience suffers loss. Take heed of getting the world with the loss of heaven. Use for thou shalt not steal. To dissuade all from this horrid sin, consider... Thieves are the caterpillars of the earth, enemies to civil society. Secondly, God hates them. In the law, the cormorant was unclean because a thievish, devouring creature, a bird of prey, by which God showed his hatred of this sin. Leviticus 11.17 Thirdly, the thief is a terror to himself. Thieves are always in fear. There were they in great fear is true of the thief. Psalm 53.5 Guilt breeds fear. If he hears but the shaking of a tree, his heart shakes, afraid of every noise. If a briar does but take hold of a thief's garment, he's afraid that the officer of the law is there to apprehend him, and fear hath torment in it. 1 John 4.18 Fourthly, the judgments that follow this sin. Achan, the thief, was stoned to death in Joshua chapter 7 verse 25. What do you see? And I answered, a flying roll. This is the curse that goeth forth over the face of the whole earth. I will bring it forth, saith the Lord, and it shall enter into the house of the thief. Zechariah 5, 2, 3, and 4. A Roman judge named Fabius condemned his own son to die for theft. Thieves die with ignominy. The latter is their preferment, and there is a worse thing than death. For while they rob others of money, they rob themselves of salvation. Question. What is to be done to avoid stealing? First, live in a calling. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands. Ephesians 4.28 and following. The devil hires such as stand idle and puts them to the pilfering trade. An idle person tempts the devil to tempt him. Secondly, be content with what God has given you. Be content with such things as ye have. Hebrews 13.5 Theft is the daughter of avarice. Study contentment. Believe that condition best which God has carved out to you. He can bless the little meal in the barrel. We shall not need these things long. We shall carry nothing out of this world. If we have but enough to bear out our charges to heaven, it is sufficient. The Ninth Commandment, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Exodus 20:16. The tongue which at the first was made to be an organ of God's praise is now become an instrument of unrighteousness. This commandment, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor, binds the tongue to its good behavior. God has set two natural fences to keep in the tongue, the teeth and the lips. And this commandment is a third fence set about it, that it should not break forth into evil. It has a prohibitory and a mandatory part. The first is set down in plain words. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. The other is clearly implied. Firstly, the prohibitory part of the commandment, or what it forbids in general. It forbids anything which may tend to the disparagement or prejudice of our neighbor. More particularly, Two things are forbidden in this commandment. First, slandering our neighbor. This is a sin against the ninth commandment. The scorpion carries his poison in his tail. The slanderer carries his poison in his tongue. Slandering is to report things of others unjustly. They laid to my charge things that I knew not. Psalm 3511 it is usual to bring a Christian beheaded of his good name. They raised for a slander of Paul that he preached men might do evil that good might come of it. We be slanderously reported, and some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Romans 3, 8. Eminence is commonly blasted by slander. Holiness itself is no shield from slander. The lamb's innocence will not preserve it from the wolf. 
Christ, the most innocent upon earth, was reported to be a friend of sinners. John the Baptist was a man of holy and austere life, and yet they said of him, He hath a devil. Matthew 11:18. The scripture calls slandering, smiting with the tongue. Come and let us smite him with the tongue. Jeremiah 18:18. 18. You may smite another and never touch him. The tongue inflicts greater wounds than the sword, said Augustine. The wounds of the tongue no physician can heal, and to pretend friendship to a man and slander him is most odious. As it is a sin against this commandment to raise a false report of another, so it is to receive a false report before we have examined it. Lord, who shall dwell in thy holy hill? Psalm 15:1. He that backbiteth not, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor. Verse 3. We must not only not raise a false report, but not take it up. He that raises a slander carries the devil in his tongue, and he that receives it carries the devil in his ear. Second, the second thing forbidden in this commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor, is false witness. Here, three sins are condemned. Speaking sins witnessing sins and swearing that which is false against your neighbor. First, speaking that which is false. Lying lips are the abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 12.22 To lie is to speak that which one knows to be an untruth. There is nothing more contrary to God than a lie. The Holy Ghost is called the Spirit of Truth. 1 John 4.6 Lying is a sin that does not go alone. It ushers in other sins. Absalom told his father a lie when he said that he was going to pay his vow at Hebron, and this was a preface to his treason, Second Samuel 15.7. Where there is a lie in the tongue, the devil is in the heart. Acts 5.3. Why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost? Lying is a sin that unfits men for civil society. How can you converse or bargain with a man when you cannot trust a word he says? This sin highly provokes God. Ananias and Sapphira were struck dead for telling a lie in Acts chapter 5. The furnace of hell is heated for liars. Without our sorcerers and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. Revelation 22.15 O oh, abhor, hate this sin. Consider your every word an oath, says Jerome. When thou speakest, let thy word be as authentic as thy oath. Imitate God, who is the pattern of truth. Pythagoras, being asked what made men like God, answered when they speak the truth. The character of a man that shall go to heaven is that he speaketh the truth in his heart. Psalm 15, verse 2. Secondly, that which is condemned in the commandment is witnessing that which is false. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Here is a twofold bearing false witness. First, there is the bearing false witness for another, then bearing false witness against another. Bearing false witness for another, as when we give our testimony for a person who is criminal and guilty, and we justify him as if he were innocent which justify the wicked for reward, Isaiah 5.23. He that seeks to make a wicked man just makes himself unjust. It is bearing false witness against another when we accuse him in open court falsely. This is to imitate the devil who is the accuser of the brethren. Though the devil is no adulterer, yet he is a false witness. Solomon says, A man that beareth false witness against his neighbor is a maul and a sword. Proverbs 25.18 In his face he is hardened like a hammer. He cannot blush. He cares not what lie he witnesses to. And he is a sword. His tongue is a sword to wound the person he witnesses against in his goods or life. There came in two men, children of Belial, and witnessed against Naboth, saying, Naboth did blaspheme God and the king. And their witness took away his life in 1 Kings 21.13. The queen of Persia being sick, the magicians accused two godly virgins of having by enchantments procured the queen's sickness, whereupon she caused those two to be sawn asunder. A false witness perverts the place of judiciary. He corrupts the judge by making him pronounce a wrong sentence and causes the innocent to suffer.
Vengeance will find out the false witness. A false witness shall not be unpunished. Proverbs 19.5 If the witness be a false witness and hath testified falsely against his brother, then ye shall do to him as he had thought to have done unto his brother. If, for instance, he had thought to have taken away his life, his own life shall go for it. Deuteronomy 19.18 and 19. Thirdly, that which is condemned in the commandment is swearing to what is false, as when men take a false oath and by that take away the life of another. Zechariah 8.17, love no false oath. What seest thou, I said, a flying roll? Chapter 5 and verse 2, this is the curse that goeth forth, and it shall enter, saith the Lord, into the house of him that sweareth falsely by my name, and it shall consume it with the timber and stones thereof. Zechariah 8, verses 3 and 4. The Scythians made a law that when a man bound together a lie with an oath, he was to lose his head, because these sins took away all truth and faith from among men. The devil has taken great possession of those who dare swear to a lie. Use 1 for reproof. Firstly, the Church of Rome is reproved, which dispenses with a lie or a false oath if it promotes the Catholic cause. It approves of an officious lie and holds some sins to be lawful. It may as well hold some lies to be lawful. God has no need of your lie. It is not lawful to tell a lie for the glory of God if we were sure to bring glory to God by it, as Augustine speaks. Secondly, they are reproved who make no conscience of slandering others. Thou sittest and slanderest thine own mother's son. Psalm 50, verse 12. Report, say they, and we will report. Jeremiah 20, verse 10. This city, that is Jerusalem, is a rebellious city and hurtful to kings and provinces. Ezra 4, 15. Paul was slandered as a mover of sedition and the head of a faction in Acts chapter 24, verse 5. The same word signifies both a slanderer and a devil. 1 Timothy 3.11 Not slanderers in the Greek, not devils. Some think it is no great matter, no big deal to misrepresent and slander others. But it is to act the part of a devil, clipping a man's credit, to make it way lighter is worse than clipping coin. The slanderer wounds three at once. He wounds him that is slandered. He wounds him to whom he reports the slander by causing uncharitable thoughts to arise up in his mind against the party slandered. And he wounds his own soul by reporting of another what is false. This is a great sin, and I wish I could say it is not common. You may kill a man in his name as well as in his person, some are loth to take away their neighbor's goods. Conscience would fly in their face, but better take away their corn out of their field, their wares out of their shop, than take away their good name. This is a sin for which no reparation can be made, a blot in a man's name, being a blot on white paper which will never be got out. Surely God will visit for this sin, if idle words shall be accounted for in the day of judgment, shall not unjust slanders. The Lord will make inquisition one day, as well as for names, as for blood. Oh, therefore take heed of this sin. Was it not a sin under the law to defame a virgin? Deuteronomy 22.19 And is it not a greater sin to defame a saint of God who is a member of Christ's body? The heathen, by the light of nature, hated the sin of slandering. Diogenes used to say, of all wild beasts, a slanderer is the worst. Antonius made a law that if a person could not prove the crime he reported another to be guilty of, he should be put to death. Thirdly, they are reproved who are so wicked as to bear false witness against others. These are monsters in nature, unfit to live in civil society. False witnesses... Eusebius relates of one Narcissus, a man famous for piety, who was accused by two false witnesses of unchastity. To prove their accusations, they endeavored to confirm it with oaths and curses. One said, If I speak not true, I pray God I may perish by fire. The other said, If I speak not true, I wish I may be deprived of my sight. It pleased God that the first witness who forswore himself should be burned in the flames. 
his house being set on fire, the other being troubled in conscience, confessed his perjury, and continued to weep so long that he wept himself blind. Jezebel, who suborned two false witnesses against Naboth, thrown down from a window, and the dogs licked her blood. 2 Kings 9.33 Oh, tremble at this sin of bearing false witness. A perjured person is the devil's excrement. He is cursed in his name and seared in his conscience. Hell gapes for such a windfall. Use two for exhortation. Firstly, let all take heed of breaking this commandment by lying, slandering, and bearing false witness. To avoid these sins, get the fear of God. Why does David say the fear of the Lord is clean? Psalm 119, verse 9. Because it cleanses the heart from malice and the tongue from slander. The fear of the Lord is clean, Psalm 19, verse 9. It is to the soul as lightning to the air, which cleanses it. Get love to your neighbor, Leviticus 19:18. If we love a friend, we shall not speak or attest anything to his prejudice. Men's minds are cankered with envy and hatred. Hence come slandering and false witnessing. Love is a lovely grace. Love thinketh no evil, 1 Corinthians 13.5. Love puts the best interpretation upon another's words. Love is a well-wisher, and it is rare to speak ill of him we wish well to. Christian charity is that which cements Christians together. Christian love is the healer of division and the hinderer of slander. Let those whose lot it is, secondly, to meet with slanderers and false accusers. One, labor to make a sanctified use of it. When Shimei railed on David, David made a sanctified use of it. The Lord hath said unto him, Curse David, Second Samuel 16.10. So, if you are slandered, or if you are falsely accused, make good use of it. See if you have no sin unrepented of, for which God may suffer you to be calumated and reproached. See if you have not at any time wronged others in their name, and said that of them which you cannot prove. Then lay your hand upon your mouth, and confess the Lord is righteous to let you fall under the scourge of someone's tongue. Secondly, if you are slandered or falsely accused, but know your own innocence, be not too much troubled. Let your rejoicing be the witness of your conscience. As one said, let this be a bulwark to know one's self guiltless. A good conscience is a wall of brass that will be able to stand against a false witness. As no flattery can heal a bad conscience, so no slander can hurt a good one. God will clear up the names of his people. He shall bring forth thy righteousness as the light. Psalm 38, 6. As he will wipe away tears from the eyes, so will he wipe off reproaches from the name. Believers shall come forth out of all their slanders and reproaches as the wings of a dove, covered with silver, and her feathers with yellow gold. Be very thankful that God, in His infinite wisdom, has preserved you from slander and false witness. Job calls it the scourge of the tongue. Chapter 5, verse 21, As a rod scourges the back, so the slanderer's tongue scourges the name. It is a great mercy to be kept from the scourge of a tongue, a mercy that God stops malignant mouths from bearing false witness. What mischief might not a lying report or a false oath do? One destroys the name, the other the life. It is the Lord who muzzles the mouths of the wicked and keeps those dogs that snarl at us from flying upon us. Thou shalt keep them secretly in a pavilion from the strife of tongues. Psalm 31. 20. There is, I suppose, an allusion to kings who, being resolved to protect their favorites against the accusation of men, take them into their bedchamber or bosom where none may touch them. So God has a pavilion or secret hiding place for his favorites, where he preserves their credit and reputation untouched. He keeps them from the strife of tongues. We ought to acknowledge this to be a great mercy before God. Secondly, the mandatory part of the commandment, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor, implied is that we stand up for others and vindicate them when they are injured by lying lips. This is the sense of the commandment, not only that we should not slander falsely or accuse others, but that we should witness for them and stand up in their defense when we know them to be traduced. 
A man may wrong another as well by silence as by slander when he knows him to be wrongfully accused, yet does not speak in his behalf. If others cast false aspersions on any, we should wipe them off. When the apostles were filled with the wine of the Holy Ghost and were charged with drunkenness, Peter openly maintained their innocence. These are not drunken, as ye suppose, Acts chapter 2, verse 15. Jonathan, knowing David to be a worthy man, and all those things Saul had said of him to be slanders, vindicated him. David hath not sinned against thee, his works have been to thee word very good. Wherefore then wilt thou sin against innocent blood to slay David without a cause? 1 Samuel 19, 4 and 5. When the primitive Christians were falsely accused for incest and killing their children, Tertullian wrote a famous apology in their vindication. This is to act the part both of a friend and of a Christian, to be an advocate for another when he is wronged in his good name. The Tenth Commandment, Exodus 20, verse 17. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. This commandment forbids covetousness in general. Thou shalt not covet, and in particular, thy neighbor's house, thy neighbor's wife, etc. Firstly, it forbids covetousness in general. Thou shalt not covet. It is lawful to use the world, yea, and to desire so much of the world as may keep us from the temptation of poverty. Give me not poverty, lest I steal, and take the name of my God in vain. Proverbs 30, 8 and 9. And as may enable us to honor God with works of mercy. Honor the Lord with thy substance. Proverbs 3, 9. But all the danger is when the world gets into your heart. Water is useful for the sailing of the ship. All the danger is when the water gets into the ship. So the fear is when the world gets into the heart. Thou shalt not covet. Question, what is it to covet? There are two words in the Greek which set forth the nature of covetousness. Pleonexia, which signifies an insatiable desire of getting the world. Covetousness is a dry dropsy. Augustine defines covetousness to desire more than enough to aim at a great estate, to be like the daughter of the horse leech, crying, Give, give, Proverbs 30, 15. Or, like behemoth, he trusteth that he can draw up Jordan into his mouth, Job 40, 23. The other word is philarguria, which signifies an inordinate love of the world. The world becomes the idol. It is so loved that a man will not part with it for any good use. He may be said to be covetous not only who gets the world unrighteously, but who loves it inordinately. Firstly, for a more full answer to the question, what is it to covet, I shall show in six particulars when a man may be said to be given to covetousness. Firstly, when his thoughts are wholly taken up with the world. A good man's thoughts are in heaven. He's thinking of Christ's love and eternal recompense. When I awake, I am still with thee. That is, in divine contemplation. Psalm 119, verse 18. A covetous man's thoughts are in the world. His mind is wholly taken up with the world. He can think of nothing but his shop or farm. The imagination is a mint house, and most of the thoughts in a covetous man's mint are worldly. He's always plotting and projecting about the things of this life, like a virgin whose thoughts all center upon her suitor. Secondly, a man may be said to be given to covetousness when he takes more pains for getting earth than for getting heaven. He will turn every stone, break his sleep, take many a weary step for the world, but will take no pains for Christ or heaven. After the Gauls, who were an ancient people of France, had tasted the sweet wine of the Italian grape, they inquired after the country and never rested till they had arrived at it. So a covetous man, having had a relish of the world, pursues after it and never ceases till he has got it. But he neglects the things of eternity. He would be content if salvation were to fall into his mouth as a ripe fig into the mouth of the eater, Nahum 3.12. But he's loath to put himself to too much sweat or trouble to obtain Christ or salvation. He hunts for the world. He wishes only for heaven. A man may be said to be given to covetousness, thirdly, when all his discourse is about 
the world. He that is of the earth speaketh of the earth, John 3:31. It is a sign of godliness to be speaking of heaven, to have the tongue turned to the language of Canaan. The words of a wise man's mouth are gracious. He speaks as if he had already been in heaven, Ecclesiastes 10:12. So it is a sign of a man given to covetousness to speak always of secular things, of his wares and drugs. A covetous man's breath, like a dying man's smell strong of the earth. As it was said to Peter, Thy speech bereath thee, so a covetous man's speech bereath him. Matthew 26, 73. He's like the fish in the gospel, which had a piece of money in his mouth. Matthew 17, 27. As it is said by Bernard, The words are the looking glass of the heart. Your words show what is within you. From the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. Fourthly, a man is given to covetousness when he so sets his heart upon worldly things that for the love of them he will part with heavenly things. For the wedge of gold he will part with the pearl of price. When Christ said to the young man in the gospel, Sell all and come and follow me, Matthew 19.22, the young man went away sorrowful. He would rather part with Christ than with all his earthly possessions. When it comes to the critical point that men must either relinquish their estate or Christ, and they will rather part with Christ and a good conscience than with their estate, it's a clear case that they are possessed with the demon of covetousness. Fifthly, a man is given to covetousness when he overloads himself with worldly business. He has so many irons in the fire, he's in this sense a pluralist. He takes so much business upon him that he cannot find time to serve God. He has scarce time to eat his food, but no time to pray. When a man overcharges himself with the world, and as Martha cumbers himself about many things that he cannot have time for his soul, he is under the power of covetousness. Sixthly, he is given to covetousness whose heart is so set upon the world that to get it he cares not for what unlawful means he uses. He'll have the world by fair means or foul. He'll wrong and defraud and raise his estate upon the ruins of another. The balances of deceit are in his hand. He loveth to oppress. Ephraim said, Yet I am become rich, Hosea 12, 7 and 8. Take heed and beware of covetousness, the use of this commandment. Luke 12:15. Take heed and beware of covetousness. It is a direct breach of the tenth commandment. It is a moral vice. It infects and pollutes the whole soul. Firstly, it is a subtle sin, a sin that many cannot so well discern in themselves, as some have cancer but do not know it or show it. This sin can dress itself in the attire of virtue. It is called the cloak of covetousness in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 5. It is a sin that wears a cloak. It cloaks itself under the name of frugality and good husbandry. It has many pleas and excuses for itself more than any other sin as providing for one's family. The more subtle the sin of covetousness is, the less discernible it is. Secondly, covetousness is a dangerous sin as it checks all that is good. It is an enemy to grace. It damps good affections as the earth puts out the fire. The hedgehog in the fable came to the corny burrows uh, in stormy weather and desired harbor, but when once he had got entertainment, he set up his prickles and never ceased till he had thrust out the poor cornies out of their burrows. So covetousness by fair pretenses winds itself into the heart, but as soon as you have let it in, it will never leave till it has choked all good beginnings and thrust all religion out of your hearts. Covetousness hinders the efficacy of the word preached. In the parable, the thorns which Christ expounded to be the cares of this life choked the good seed, Matthew 13:22. Many sermons lie dead and buried in earthly hearts. We preach to men to get their hearts in heaven, but where covetousness is predominant, it chains them to earth and makes them like the woman which Satan had bowed together that she could not lift up herself. Luke 13.11 You may as well bid an elephant fly in the air as a covetous man live by faith. 
We preach to men to give freely to Christ's poor, but covetousness makes them like the man in the gospel who had a withered hand. Mark 3, 1. They have a withered hand and cannot stretch it out to the poor. It's impossible to be earthly-minded and charitably-minded. Covetousness obstructs the efficacy of the word and makes it prove abortive. They whose hearts are rooted in the earth will be so far from profiting by the word that they will be ready rather to deride the word. The Pharisees who were covetousness derided the Savior. Luke chapter 16 verse 14. Thirdly, covetousness is a mother sin, a radical vice. The love of money is the root of all evil. 1 Timothy 6.10 Oh, accursed lust for gold, says Virgil. What crimes do you not urge upon the human heart? He who has an earthly itch, a greedy desire of getting the world, has in him the root of all sin. Covetousness is a mother sin. I shall make it appear that covetousness is a breach of all the Ten Commandments. Covetousness breaks the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods but one. The covetous man has more gods than one. Mammon is his god. He has a god of gold. Therefore he is called an idolater. Colossians 3, 5. Covetousness breaks the second commandment. Thou shalt not make any graven image. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them. A covetous man bows down, maybe not to the graven image in a church, yet to the graven image on his coin. Covetousness is a breach of the third commandment. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Absalom's design was to get his father's crown, which was covetousness. But he talked of paying his vow to God, which was to take God's name in vain. Covetousness is a breach of the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. A covetous man does not keep the Sabbath holy. He'll ride to the market on a Sabbath. Instead of reading the Bible, he'll do his bookkeeping. Covetousness is a breach of the fifth commandment, honor thy father and thy mother. A covetous person does not honor his father. If he does not feed him with money, nay, he will get his father to make over his estate to him in his lifetime, so that the father may be at the son's command. Covetousness is a breach of the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. Covetous Ahab killed Naboth to get his vineyard in 1 Kings 21 13. How many have swum to the crown in blood? Covetousness is a breach of the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. It causes uncleanness. You read in the Bible of the hire of a whore in Deuteronomy 23.18. An adulteress for money puts both conscience and chastity on sale. Covetousness is a breach of the eighth commandment. Thou shalt not steal. Covetousness is the root of theft. Covetous Achim stole the wedge of gold. Thieves and covetous are put together in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 10. Covetousness is a breach of the ninth commandment. Thou shalt not bear false witness. What makes the perjurer take a false oath but covetousness? He hopes for a reward. It is plainly a breach of the last commandment. Thou shalt not covet. The worshiper of mammon covets his neighbor's house and goods and endeavors to get them into his own hands. Thus you see how vile a sin covetousness is. It is the mother sin. It is a plain breach of every one of the Ten Commandments. Fourthly, covetousness is a sin dishonorable to religion. For men to say their hopes are above while their hearts are below, to profess to be above the stars while they lick the dust of the serpent, to be born of God while they're buried in the earth. How dishonorable is this to religion? The lapwing wears a little cornet on its head, and yet that bird feeds on dung. It's an emblem of such as profess to be crowned kings and priests to God, and yet feed immoderately on worldly dunghill comforts. And seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not. Jeremiah 45.5 what, thou Barak, who art ennobled by the new birth, and art illustrious by thy office, a Levite, dost thou seek earthly things, and seek them now? When the ship is sinking, art thou trimming thy cabin? Oh, do not so degrade thyself. Seekest thou great things? Seek them not. The higher grace is, the less earthly should Christians be. As the higher the sun is, the shorter your shadow. Fifthly, covetousness exposes us to God's abhorrence. 
the covetous whom the Lord abhorreth. Psalm 10:3. A king hates to see his statue abused, so God hates to see man made in his image, having the heart of a beast. Who would live in such a sin as makes him hated of God? Whom God hates, he curses, and his curse blasts wherever it comes. Sixthly, covetousness precipitates men to ruin and shuts them out of heaven. Ephesians 5.5, 5, This ye know that no covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. What could a covetous man do in heaven? God can no more converse with the covetous man than a king could talk with a swine. They that will be rich fall into a snare, and many hurtful lusts which drown men in perdition. 1 Timothy 6, 9, A covetous man is like a bee that gets into a barrel of honey and there drowns itself, like a ferryman taking in so many passengers to increase his fare that he sinks his ferry boat. So a covetous man takes in so much gold to increase his estate that he drowns himself in perdition. I've read of some inhabitants near Athens, Greece, who living in a very dry and barren land took much pains to draw a river to that land to water it and to make it fruitful. But when they'd opened the passages and brought the river to it, the water broke in with such force that it drowned the land and all the people in it. This is an emblem of a covetous man who labors to draw riches to him, and at last they come in such abundance that they drown him in perdition. How many to build up an estate pull down their own souls? Oh, then flee from covetousness. I shall next prescribe some remedies against covetousness. Secondly, I am in the next place to solve the question, What is the cure for this covetousness? Firstly, faith. This is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. First John 5, 4. The root of covetousness is distrust of God's providence. Faith believes that God will provide, that he who feeds the birds will feed his children, that he who clothes the lilies will clothe his lambs, and thus faith overcomes the world. Faith is the cure of care. Faith not only purifies the heart, but satisfies it. It makes God our portion, and in him we have enough. The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance. The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly heritage. Psalm 16, 5 and 6. Faith, by a divine chemistry, extracts comfort out of God. A little with God is sweet. Thus faith is a remedy against covetousness. It overcomes not only the fear of the world, but the love of the world. Secondly, judicious considerations will be a cure against covetousness. Consider as what poor things these things below are, that we should covet them. They are far below the worth of the soul, which carries it in an idea and resemblance of God. The world is but the workmanship of God. The soul is God's image. We covet that which will not satisfy us. He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver. Ecclesiastes 5.10 Solomon had put all the creatures in a retort and distilled out their essence, and behold, all is vanity. Ecclesiastes 2.11 Covetousness is a dry dropsy. The more a man has, the more he thirsts. The more water is drunk, the more is craved, says Ovid. Worldly things cannot remove trouble of mind. When King Saul was perplexed in conscience, his crown jewels could not comfort him. 1 Samuel 28.15 The things of this world can no more ease your troubled spirit than a gold cap can cure your headache. The things of the world cannot continue with you. The creature has a little honey in its mouth, but it has wings to fly away. These things either go from us or we from them. What poor things are they to covet? The second consideration is the frame and texture of the body. God has made your face to look upward towards heaven. He gave man an uplifted face with the order to gaze up to heaven, says Ovid. Anatomists observe that whereas other creatures have but four muscles to their eyes, man has a fifth muscle by which he is able to look up to heaven. And as for the heart, it is made narrow and contracted downwards, but wide and broad upwards. As the frame and texture of the body teaches us to look to things above, 
So especially the soul is planted in the body as a divine spark to ascend upwards. Can it be imagined that God gave us intellectual and immortal souls to covet earthly things only? What wise man would fish for catfish with golden hooks? Did God give us glorious souls only to fish for the world? Sure, our souls are made for a higher end to aspire after the joy enjoyment of God in glory. The third consideration is the examples of those who have been condemners and despisers of the world. The primitive Christians, as Clemens Alexandrinus observes, were sequestered from the world and were wholly taken up in converse with God. They lived in the world, above the world, like the birds of paradise who soar above in the air and seldom or never touch the earth with their feet. Luther says that he was never tempted to the sin of covetousness. Though the saints of old lived in the world, they traded in heaven. Our conversation is in heaven, Philippians 3.20. The Greek word signifies our commerce or traffic or citizenship is in heaven. Enoch walked with God, Genesis 5.24. The affections of Enoch were sublimated and took a turn in heaven every day. The righteous are compared to a palm tree in Psalm 92.12. Philo observes that whereas all other trees have their sap in their root, the sap of the palm tree is toward the top, and thus is an emblem of the saints whose hearts are in heaven where their treasure is. Thirdly, the third remedy for covetousness is to covet spiritual things more than earthly things. Covet grace, for it is the best blessing. It is the seed of God, 1 John 3, 9. Covet heaven, which is the region of happiness, the most pleasant clime. If we covet heaven more, we shall covet earth less. To those who stand on the top of the Alps, the great cities of Campania seem but as tiny villages. So if our hearts were more fixed upon Jerusalem above, all worldly things would disappear, would diminish and be as nothing in our eyes. We read of an angel coming down from heaven and setting his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the earth, Revelation 10.2. Had we been in heaven and viewed its superlative glory, how should we with holy scorn trample with one foot upon the earth and with the other foot upon the sea? Oh, covet after heavenly things. There is the tree of life, the mountains of spices, the rivers of pleasure in heaven. There, the honeycomb of God's love dropping the delights of angels, there the flower of joy, fully ripened, blown. There in heaven is the pure air to breathe in. No fogs or vapors of sin arise to infect heaven's air, but the sun of righteousness enlightens the whole horizon continually with his glorious beams. Oh, let your thoughts and delights be always taken up with the city of pearls, the paradise of God. It is reported of Lazarus that after he was raised from the grave, he was never seen to smile or take delight in the world. Were our hearts raised by the power of the Holy Ghost up to heaven, we should not be much taken with earthly things. Fourthly, the fourth remedy against covetousness is to pray for a heavenly mind. Lord, let the lodestone of thy spirit, the magnet of thy spirit, draw my heart upward. Lord, dig the earth out of my heart. Teach me how to possess the world and not love it. How to hold it in my hand and not let it get into my heart. Secondly, having spoken of the command in general, I proceed to speak of it more particularly. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, etc. Observe the holiness and perfection of the law that forbids the first motions and risings of sin in the heart. Thou shalt not covet. The laws of men take hold of actions, but the law of God goes further. It forbids not only actions, but desires. Thou shalt not covet it. It is said, Thou shalt not take away his house. Thou shalt not covet it. These lusts and desires after the forbidden fruit are sinful. The law has said, Thou shalt not covet. Romans 7, 7. Though the tree bears no bad fruit, it may be faulty at the root. So, though a man does not commit any gross sin, he cannot say his heart is pure. There may be faultiness at the root. There may be sinful covetings and lustings in the soul. A use let us be humbled for the sin of our nature, the risings of evil thoughts, coveting that which we ought not. 
Our nature is a seed plot of iniquity, like charcoal that is ever sparking. The sparks of pride, envy, covetousness arise in the mind. How should this humble us? If there be not sinful actings, there are sinful covetings. Let us pray for mortifying grace, which like the water of jealousy may make the thigh of sin to rot. Question. Why is the house here put before the wife? In Deuteronomy, the wife is put first. Neither shalt thou desire thy neighbor's wife, neither shalt thou covet thy neighbor's house. Deuteronomy 5.21. In Deuteronomy, the wife is set down first in respect of her value. She, if a good wife, is of far greater value and estimate than the house. Her price is far above rubies. Proverbs 31.10. She's the furniture of the house, and this furniture is worth more than the house. When Alexander had overcome King Darius in battle, Darius seemed not to be much dismayed, but when he heard his wife was taken prisoner, his eyes like spouts gushed forth water, for he valued his wife more than his own life. But in Exodus, the house is put before the wife because the house is first in order. The house is built before the wife can live in it. The nest is built before the bird is in it. The wife is first esteemed, but the house must first be provided. Firstly, then, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. How depraved is man since the fall of Adam? He knows not how to keep within bounds, but covets more than his own. Ahab, one would think, had enough. He was king, and we should suppose his crown revenues would have contented him, but he was coveting more. Naboth's vineyard was in his eye and stood near the smoke of his chimney, and he couldn't be quiet till he had it in possession. Were there not so much coveting, there would not be so much bribing. One man takes away another's house from him. It's only the prisoner who lives in a tenement slum that may be sure none will seek to take it from him. Secondly, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. This is a bridle to check the inordinate and brutish lusts. It was the devil that sowed another man's ground, Matthew 13:25. But how is the hedge of this commandment trodden down in our times? There are many who do more than covet their neighbor's wives. They take them. Cursed be he that lieth with his father's wife, and all the people shall say, Amen, Deuteronomy 27.20. If it were to be proclaimed, Cursed be he that lieth with his neighbor's wife, and all that were guilty should say, Amen, how many today would curse themselves? Thirdly, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's manservant nor his maidservant. Servants, when faithful, are a treasure. What true and trusty servant had Abraham? He was his right hand. Fourthly, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. Were there no coveting ox and ass, there would be no stealing. First men break the tenth commandment by coveting, then the eighth commandment by stealing. Question, what means should we use to keep us from coveting that which is our neighbor's? The best remedy is contentment. If we are content with our own, we shall not covet that which is another's. Paul could say, I have coveted no man's gold or silver. Whence was this? It was from contentment. I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Philippians 4.11 Content, as Jacob says, I have enough. Genesis 33.11 I have a promise of heaven, and have sufficient to bear my charges thither. I have enough. He who has enough will not covet that which is another's. Be content. And the best way to be contented is, firstly, believe that the condition to be best which God, by his providence, carves out to you. If God had seemed fit for us to have more, we should have had it. Perhaps we could not manage a great estate. It's hard to carry a full cup without spilling, and a full estate without sinning. Great estates may be great snares. A boat may be overturned by having too much sail. The believing that estate to be best which God appoints us makes us content. And being contented, we shall not covet that which is another's. Secondly, the way to be content with such things as we have and not to covet another's is to consider the less we have, the less account we shall have to give at the last day. Every person is a steward and must be accountable to God. They who have great estates have the greatest reckoning. God will say, what good have you done with your estates? Have you honored me with your substance? Where are the poor you have fed and clothed? If you cannot give a good account, it will be sad and should make you contented with less apportion now to consider the less riches now, the less reckoning then. This is the way to have contentment. There is no better antidote against coveting that which is another man's than being content with that which is your own. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. 
our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.